Hey there, and welcome back to Season 1, Episode 21 of the Clarity Podcast. This podcast is all about providing clarity, insight, and encouragement for your life and mission. I'm Aaron Santemeyer, and I will be your host. Today we have a return guest, uh, two return guests, uh, Vern Clark, Admiral Vern Clark, and um, Dick Foth um, rejoined us on the podcast today. That When we had... Um, Admiral Clark, the last time I uh, only got through about two of my questions and uh, just a wealth of knowledge, wisdom, and as I put it out, it's like a master of doctoral class in leadership. If you know, um, Vern Clark led the Navy, which is a billions of billions of dollar organization, hundreds of thousands of people he was responsible for. And so when you have an opportunity to learn about leadership and life, um, and strategy and the questions we dived into. We dived into what is hope? Why is hope not a strategy? And what does that look like? And he de- de- delineates what strategy truly is and what goals really are and um, delineates that was valuable. We talked about his, um, one of his main focuses is what was when he was the head of the Navy was winning the hearts of, of people and winning that battle and um, the idea of attrition and retention and how he focused on that and how he allowed um, people to know that were serving when they made that oath, when they took that uh, oath that they were, they were valued and he valued them and that they had made that um, declaration and he wanted to do everything in his power to make sure that they were successful and not discard people in the process and what it meant to leave the the Navy if you went home and, and carrying that sense of failure of not accomplishing the mission and how he addressed that man for, for us as overseas workers, that is powerful. And Dick, you know, Dick pulls out a little bit and says, you know what does, you know, for a lot of times overseas workers, they not only feel like they've, they failed the mission, but maybe they failed God in that process. And they, they unpack that power conversation and um, lessons he's learned in the process, how he communicated value to the people he was leading and the importance of continually communicate that. And then at the end, we we uh, jumped into a little bit about leaders and friendship and how you find those friends and who the people you can trust is trust. And he delineates again what a difference between a relationship is and a friendship. That sounds like a small thing, but to me, it was very powerful. We have a lot of what I call intersecting schedules, but not necessarily a lot of uh, of friends. And, um, he talks about that and we, you know, he started talking about covenant, um, leadership and we didn't get into that. So I think we're going to, he agreed to come back again. And so hopefully we'll get him back in the, in the, in a few weeks or months when his schedule opens up back again, just for us to jump into another conversation. Um, remember to send your podcast questions in to Dick Foth for back channel with Foth. Uh, my ad, my email address and the growth capacities will be in the show notes and, uh, just looking forward to another great episode this time with um, our friend Admiral Vern Clark and Dick Foth. Just want to thank our sponsor, agwmafrica.org, for an increasingly redeemed and transformed Africa. 50 countries, 257 training centers, 404 missionaries, and 79,106 indigenous churches. Discover what you can do and how you can be engaged at agwmafrica.org. Well, there's no time better than now to get started, so here we go. Well, 
Greetings. Welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. It's uh, our joy and pleasure to be back with our, our friend Dick Foth and um, Admiral Vern Clark. And so looking forward, we had a great conversation last time and I only got through about three questions um, that we had. And uh, we just thought it'd be great to come back today. And both of our guests graciously agreed to, to give up their time once again to invest in missionary workers um, serving around the world. So Dick, we'll, let, we'll jump in. Okay, well, great to be back, Aaron. And uh, so I'm going to start, Vern, with, with this question for you uh, in particular, because you are quoted as saying, hope is not a strategy. And I hear that and say, really? I thought hope was the strategy. Talk to me about it. What did, what did you mean by hope is not a strategy? And how does one develop a strategy in following a crisis or in the middle of a crisis? So those are two separate <clears throat> Okay, um, forgive me, my, I've got a little bit of a, an allergy thing going, so I'm a little hoarse this morning, but, <clears throat> but um, glad to be with you, Aaron and Dick, uh, again. And, and uh, I'm also thankful for this thing called technology that allows us to do stuff like this. Uh, let me say first, I think we, it really is important to talk about what, is, what strategy really is. And, uh, you know, in our culture, <clears throat> our language set, we tend to use strategy uh, uh, when a lot of times we're really talking about uh, goals or t tactics or whatever. In my game, I used to talk to my admirals about, and I may have mentioned this before, uh, let's make sure that we understand that the admiral level, we're supposed to be talking about strategic things. And when we're uh, operating at sea, we're talking about tactical things. There may be a strategic plan, but the strategic plan is a long-term uh, thing. So oftentimes we talk about strategy when we're really talking in the short term. And I, I wanna say that, um, and one other thing in leading in, Dick, I mentioned this to you before, you know, it's, uh, as people of faith and uh, Christians and uh, child of the King, we have a grand strategy um, in our faith. And in our faith, um, our belief in Jesus Christ is our strategic approach. <clears throat> so I don't want to totally debunk the whole idea of hope, but <laughs> then let's quickly go back to the point that my profession <clears throat> Mean Thank second you. best was Thank a terminal you. disease, remember? <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you so much for not debunking hope with missionary family around the world. Yeah, yeah. so uh, when we're running organizations and hoping that they'll run well, hope isn't going to get it. Um, and I don't need to describe what can go wrong. A, a million things can go wrong. Um, but the whole reason that we have leaders in organization is to have an outcome better than hoping it will come out okay. <laughs> and so I first heard this term when I was a three-star. I was the director for operations on the joint staff working for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, of staff, and that was General Hugh Shelton. And Shelton was the, <clears throat> before he was the chairman, he was the commander-in-chief of uh, all special operations forces in the United States military. And this was one tough hombre. 
And when he wanted to really make a point, and, and let me just say, <clears throat> as the director for operations, these global commanders, the commanders in chiefs, they were called then, now they're called combatant commanders. But the commanders in chief, for example, there's a commander in chief of Europe, there's a commander, commander in chief of the Middle East, the commander in chief of South America, commander in chief of the Pacific theater, the biggest theater in the world. Um, these guys are all on the hook to provide uh, specific operating plans, uh, war plans, in, and to have them sitting on the shelf for uh, particular scenarios that the le national leadership has decided were potentially going to happen. And so um, when, and by the way, as the director for operations, my organization, and me to the chairman was to review these plans and see if they made any sense. <laughs> that wasn't something we did every week. In fact, most often they were updated every, uh, every two to three years. But each time they came into the system and we went all through them. And that was the first time I heard uh, General Shelton say, hey, this has got a lot of hope in it and hope is not a strategy. <laughs> <laughs> That's where that's where I actually first heard that. <clears throat> he was a, so, he, he was a big guy, wasn't he? Wasn't he a uh, six or so? Yeah, six he was a big guy. Yeah, and um, smiled rarely. He <laughs> 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 didn't have a sense of humor. His, his the corner of his mouth just didn't curl up or something. So <clears throat> you had to listen carefully to make sure you knew what was going on. So what hope is not a strategy really means then is that uh, as leaders, we're accountable for outcomes. And that means that there are things that we're supposed to do. Um, and so uh, I'm really fond of a scripture. Um, it's in Psalm 74, I believe. Uh, I haven't looked at it in a couple of years, but it says, uh, and he led them with a caring heart and skillful hands. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Uh, right out of the scriptures. And so what does that really mean? It means as leaders first, if we're, uh, remember I told you before, my favorite book on leadership is The Truth About Leadership. And truth in that book, and that's done by these academic researchers, truth number 10 is that, uh, leadership is an affair of the heart and if we're not wired up right uh, in our heart we're never going to be great leaders it's not even remotely possible oh we may be great dictators we may be great at giving that a lot of orders um, and in the short term uh, you can get away with that but it's been proven time and time again that in the long term that doesn't work out so well but it's more than having a caring heart. Uh, the, the scripture verse that I'm quoting, he led them with, a care, with skillful hands and a caring heart. And to me, uh, as a person of faith, that absolutely means that as a leader, we have been placed in a position and the Bible says the Lord raises uh, leaders, God raises leaders. And, and if we are so called 
it means that this is a calling from above. And we are supposed to commit ourselves to developing the skills that allow a caring heart to work well and build great organizations. Now, you remember when I say this, uh, what I'm gonna say, remember I'm a preacher's kid. Uh, way, way first I was a preacher's kid before I was ever a, a lieutenant or a commander or you know, and end up an admiral. And so I wanna make sure that I'm not sniping at the church but one of the things that I noticed when I was a kid is that there were a bunch of people in leadership positions that I observed, well, I don't want to say a bunch, there were some, and, and because dad was a district superintendent of the state of Illinois, I got to see a bunch of them. And I was a teenager, so you know, all teenagers know everything. And so, but my impression was they weren't, some of them weren't that gifted. And that's a real shame. So uh, this, uh, now, there's a lots of things to say about the strategy. I don't want to debunk strategy, quite the opposite. It is critical that as leaders, we have a well-developed strategic approach and then a, a strategy that uh, we can convey uh, to others. And I love the story about the thrill that as one of the plaques that somebody gave me is from the chief, the chief petty officers. Uh, because I used to talk about the thrill as a leader of being able to pick up the paintbrush and paint a picture of the vision that we have for our organization. Um, and so uh, constantly talking about strategic things that are way in the future on the horizon is a very important part of the leadership function. Without it, we're going to fail. We got to know where we're going. And by the way, I love what Covey said first, and it's a good transition into the talk about the, uh, the crisis uh, part of this question, is that the, a great guide for leaders is begin with the end. Now, in crisis, we talk about a different time frame here. Remember last time when we talked about this, I said, you know, don't get caught up in the tyranny and the urgent. We hear that over and over in the literature. The research has shown that leaders that get distracted by the tyranny of the urgent will fail. But if it's really urgent, you really better take care of it or you're going to fail, <laughs> but for a different reason. So, you know, this leadership game's got pitfalls on, uh, you know, lay potholes laying all over the road. Um, so Covey said, begin with the end in mind. When we're leading in crisis, it's not the time for a big strategic discussion about uh, where we're going to be in 20 years. I mean, that's silly. Uh, and even when I was running the Navy, it was hard for me. Uh, we had a strategic organization, and they had, uh, it was created by one of my predecessors that uh, would have a 20-year focus. And when I came in, I pulled the leader aside and I said, uh, and they happened to be make, made up of uh, world-class business leaders who volunteered to come and be on this CNO executive panel. And, um, uh, I, but I called him aside and I said, look, I don't want to debunk the 20 year horizon uh, in front of all of your players here. We'll go there but, uh, in meetings and discussions when people have a question 
but don't ever get me wrapped up in a 20 year discussion. I got four years here by law. If I spend all my time thinking about 20 years out, this is gonna be a really miserable experience for the United States Navy, let alone me. Um, so, you know, we gotta deal with the things that are coming at us every day. So uh, when we talked about this last time, remember I said, so the first thing I did after 9-11 was get all my leaders together. Uh, I think it's very important for us to remember that our calling is to inspire leadership in, in the crisis moment, in the short term, but what does it mean to us as leaders then? So how do we integrate that with the strategy question, which I thought was really a good follow on to what we talked about last time. Well, for starters, remember I said, you gotta get with the, your subordinate team and you gotta be talking to them, but you mostly have to be listening. And so it's an 80-20 game. First of all, you're listening 80% of the time and you're fine tuning the direction ahead and what you thought you heard. If you go into those meetings where it's 80%, you know, run your mouth and 20% listening, you don't really know what happened today. And the reason that you have those discussions is to find out how it's going in the field um, you know, and with your subordinate team. And so I think it's really important um, uh, to establish a communication that we called it the battle rhythm. And so that there's great feedback, but in this communication, we are constantly uh, reinforcing that longer reach, uh, but we're not letting them get starstruck with it. We're saying, remember, we're on a journey and it's taking us to this. Uh, but in the process, we, we're dealing with today in crisis. So tell me what you got today and what, uh, let everybody know that we're, uh, what's going on so that uh, we can support one another and react to one another. And, uh, and so forth. So I don't get uh, caught up in a big strategy in crisis. It's the wrong time. That's not where you want them thinking. Because if, you, if they're thinking out there, you're going to fail. They've got to be dealing with the crisis. Wow. Uh, uh, one more thing, and I'll close this, this, this topic. Um, some years ago, and I don't even know where I got it, but I got it in some, some of the reading that I was doing. Uh, did I tell you about the, you know, uh, truth number eight in the truth about leadership, I think it is, is the best leaders are the best learners. Did I tell you about that and use that one? So if we're, if we're not learning all the time, we're dead. You know, I, I, I handed out books to my admirals and said, you know, I don't believe we can go forward unless all of us are working from the same playbook. And the playbook is we have to have a frame of reference that understands the dynamics of change and the absolute importance of change. Of course, I wanted to change the Navy like nobody ever had. And so, but then, you know, I reinforced, now look, I know, and, by, and I got this out of the scripture, I believe that um, uh, the, the, the scripture teaches us that God made man with the power to choose. Uh, in fact, I believe when we go look at the scriptures, who as many believe they became to become, so many just believe they can become the son or daughter of God. Of God. Uh, that's all about, we have the power to choose to do so. So it's stupid for a leader to sit and dictate, you're going to read this book and you know, you're going to, they're not going to get anything out of it if they decide they don't want to grow in that way. But so when I took over the Navy, I gave them four books. One of them was Leading Change. The first time I had my annual get together with all the admirals, and my transition team had said, this is a really big meeting. 
In fact, typically there would be uh, speakers from the outside come in. Larry Bossidy, I had laid on to come and speak to. In fact, God had him a couple of years later. But when I went to my transition team six months into the one that's this meeting always took place in January uh, with all admirals from around the globe. And if they weren't combat combat zone, they were supposed to be there. And when I went to check in with my transition team, who happened to be deployed around the world, and I was in the five-sided puzzle palace in the Pentagon, and that's you know ivory tower syndrome. I called them all in. I said, you know, here's what the special speakers that were laid on by my predecessor. And, um, and uh, I want to know what you think about this. And it got real quiet in a room. And by the way, this group I had lived with for a month before I took over and they knew they could talk bluntly with me. And finally, one of them said, Admiral, we don't need any outside speakers. And I said, oh, we really don't think that's a good approach. And the guy said, no, Admiral, uh, you've been in six months, but I will tell you, they don't all know you like we know you. And they don't know you yet. And we don't need outside speakers. And then there was a pause and he said, actually, Admiral, we need a revival meeting. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> you hadn't heard that, had you, Dick? <laughs> no, I haven't. So, so, <laughs> Vern, just just before you transition to the next question, uh, something struck me because what I'm hearing you saying, whether it's strategy or tactics or crisis, is that there's a very real sense in which listening is leading, and for the and for the folks listening around the world uh, on this podcast, you know, our our mission is we want to bring transforming good news life to people all around the world. And I, I was on another call just this morning and somebody quoted Francis Schaeffer, who's now with Jesus, but back in the day, 40 years ago, he, he was this clarion voice, historian, theologian. And somebody asked him the question, if you had 10 minutes to share Jesus with someone, what would you say? And his response was, I would listen for nine and speak for one. Mm. Powerful. I, you know, the, that's a powerful deal. Okay, you're up, Aaron. Uh, one oh, thing before we leave this crisis mode. In our regular communications with them, you're listening. One of the things you're doing, you're constantly assessing. Remember this. And this is the part I started down this road. I don't remember where I picked this up. But if you boil down leadership to the real basics, one of the most important thing leaders do is they get have the authority to commit resources. So in this crisis moment, it's critical that you as the leader and them leading their subordinate teams understand that in crisis, it's real easy to squander resources. We're throwing resources at things, hoping, remember hope is not a strategy. We're hoping that this is really going to make a, a, a difference. It is critical to constantly be assessing in our wrap-ups. We call them wrap-ups in the Navy, in the military. Every day at 5 o'clock, wrap-up with the chairman, uh, me and him. And, uh, and so evaluating all the resources that are available to us, human resources, financial resources, physical resources, material resources, Critical thing, remember, in crisis, don't let yourself wander away from this. 
that every day you're doing a rap and, and when you're wrapping up with your team, you're thinking about, you're not challenging. This isn't the moment. If you have a problem with you, what you thought you heard, it might be better to take that up privately before you take a 30 minute sidebar in crisis situation, tying up everybody. But that assessment is critical to the outcome. Good deal. Good deal. One of the things that, um, fascinates me and I've spent a lot of time I did my MBA project on was missionary attrition and overseas worker attrition unhealthy missionary uh retention and um uh, preventable uh, missionary attrition and so I know that that has one of, been one of your focuses one of the focuses mm -hmm. when you led the navy that that's what you were focused on was attrition <clears throat> be very interested in your 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 strategy and how you unpack that because the reality of it is it is in missions work as you talked about stewardship and resources people um it's an it's a expensive resource and to be stewards of what god has given us the the average missionary 48 percent of the people don't come back for their second term which would be after four years and um, mm -hmm. it takes a ton of money and training and time and effort to get somebody to the field and if you have that constant turnover, trying to be steward, you know, in Africa, we were being steward, stewardship effectiveness and accountability, being accountable to our partners and being stewards of what God has given us. And so I think we have a lot to learn from you when it comes to um, attrition and how you address that in the Navy and then how we can apply that um, to our, our missional lives. Well, thanks, Aaron. And, you know, I'm so glad you asked this question because I love to talk about this. I tell you, I could talk for a week on this subject. Um, and and it's, it's attrition and retention. And in the Navy, we didn't have a visibility of attrition because it was buried in the retention statistics. So, I, honestly, we were measuring it, but not, nobody ever knew it. Uh, and I first found out about it when I was commander of the Anti-Submarine Warfare Training Command. And, uh, in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and I, that was the organization for the Atlantic Fleet. And one day a letter showed up in my desk that said I had a 32% attrition in my Ocean Systems Technology Maintenance course. And to get in that course, you had to be one of the brightest kids in RARC, uh trying to get in the Navy. I mean at the top, because it was extraordinarily technical. I was stunned in my, so at that point in time, I had about 20 years in the Navy, maybe 18. It's the first time I'd ever heard anybody talk about attrition. We talked about retention all the time. And by the way, uh, retention was always in the toilet in the Navy, always. Uh, <laughs> is that straightforward enough? I mean, <laughs> it was horrible. And uh, in fact, we, got to the place that we sort of expected it. Well, not sort of, we, we did expect it. We had a first term, as, as long as I can remember, we had a first term retention goal when I was old enough to know better, of in a, between 30 and four, 35 and 40%. That was our goal. Uh, and so this letter was a life changer for me. Uh, I won't get into the details, but we fixed it quickly. Uh, by finding out why these people were failing. But it made a huge impact on me. And when I became the head of the Navy, I was determined I was gonna do something about this. Because to me, this was a moral issue. 
The sons and daughters of America raised their right hand and took an oath to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And they come and do that. And by the way, in the, the end of that oath, and to obey the orders of the President of the United States and all the officers appointed over them, between them and the President. And by the way, when they took that oath, it was sight unseen. They didn't even know who these humanoids were. <laughs> I mean, that's a big time oath. And it, it was is. aggravating to me to the end to think that, and I always thought this was something that was so wrong that they were attriting or that they were so dissatisfied at the end of four years that when I took over as the commander of the Atlantic fleet, the first thing I asked was, what is our first term retention? And it was, uh, it was 19%. And the goal was 38. I mean, it, I'm telling you, I said this was in that cistern, you know, I wasn't kidding. I mean, this was really bad. And it had been that way my entire life. One year we made our retention goals, the year Ronald Reagan gave the whole military a 17% pay raise with the introduction of the all-volunteer force. And voila, we made our retention goals. And you know what? The next year, boom, right back in the toilet. Wow. And so I was determined I was going to take this on. But I also knew that do this, I had to change the culture. And all the, I've read, you know, hundreds of leadership books. You can't change the culture in four years. And I had a four-year tour by law. Um, so I, I created, did I talk about the top five last time? Did? I created be, if you want to talk, yeah. And the, uh, winning the battle for people was the number one priority. And inside of that was um, attrition. And I, when I, with my transition team, when I asked them, I had them all come to Norfolk. I was still commander-in-chief of the Atlantic in transition uh, and i'd just been confirmed by the senate so i was allowed to get them together and start this process and i went there were 12 of them and i went around the table said anybody around the table i want to what do you think attrition is today? none of them knew they just made wild guesses they were all the guesses were all really low compared to what it really was first term attrition in the United States Navy, when I took over, was 39%, which meant that one in four out of 10 young Americans who signed up to wear the cloth of the nation had a failure experience in the Navy. And I said to them, and this was at the first meeting of the admirals I told at the All Admirals Conference, um, I said, you know, I wanted them to read those books, and I, but the power of choice, I didn't close, I said, you know, you're, you, you have the choice whether to grow or not. And, and so we're going to grow together because none of us know enough to be executives of a $120 billion company. So we're going to do this. Uh, you know, we're great operators. We can command forces all over the place. As admirals, we're getting paid to do something else, and that's the executive function. And so, but if you decide you don't want to do this, that's fine. You have the right to do that. But by the way, you probably should be looking for a new line of work. Uh, because we're going someplace else. Uh, you know, it was creating a, an expectation. Well, uh, I, want, I want to tell you, it was a moral question to me, but also I was trying to figure out how to uh, teach our admirals how to spell ROI, return on investment. None of us knew because we didn't have to know. We just went and begged for more money from Congress. 
but I knew that it cost me thousands of dollars for every recruit that I got them, between fifteen to twenty thousand dollars each then for the lowest level recruit. And if they were getting technical training, the number just went up till a pilot cost me a couple million dollars to train. And if they go home at the end of their first experience, I mean the nation is losing out. But worse than that, attrition, if they fail, they're going back to a neighborhood and they're going to live there with that failure experience. And one of my recruiters is going to go back out in that neighborhood and try to convince somebody that committing their life to this organization is a really good thing to do. And I asked them, the admirals, the question, how long do you think it is before we can go back into that very same neighborhood and try to convince another young American that this is a really good thing to do? And it was really quiet in the room because, you know, frankly, none of them had ever been confronted with this. So, uh, well, and when Vern, if I can just jump in for a moment, when you know when these when these missionary friends around the world, or folks who are quote called to ministries or mission, what, <clears throat> the feeling isn't just often that we failed the organization or failed ourselves. There's this feeling that somehow we failed God. Yeah, the kingdom. How in the world do we get past that? You know, that's a and. So, so preventing that level of, um, of intense um, feelings and truth in some, not the truth that I feel God, but the, but the truth that this is how I feel about it. Uh, how do we grapple with that? Well, I think you have to confront it. And uh, so this, is, I, I, I confronted it with my leaders and I said, and no, so we're gonna do this. Um, I pulled attrition out so it had a spotlight on it. Mm. Okay? Because you can't, you, you know, it's said that if you can't measure it, you can't fix it. So, so now it wasn't going to be buried. And it was 39%. And I said, we're going to cut attrition this year by 25%. And you know what? We're going to cut it next year by 25%. And you know what? We're going to cut it the next year by 25%. And they're sitting there kind of with it, this. And did all this in the first week, Dick. Uh, because <laughs> here, remember, I had, I had well, the CNO project yeah. uh, was so big, only he could take it on. That was mine. The first year was, uh, no, no, first year was, I said that wrong. The first year was, I was reorganizing, reorganizing the whole Navy. So that was my project. But my top five, everywhere I went, I talked about my top five. And number one was win the battle for people. And that included attention, uh, retention and attrition. So it was the, for every audience, that's what I talked to them about. And I started with the story about 32% per, of my uh, ocean systems technicians. And we're sending them home and they're the best and the brightest in the whole Navy. And I'm not going to be the CNO of a Navy like that, period. And so um, I want to introduce you to covenant leadership. And you know how I feel about the covenant. So, so, so Vern, you, you, you took this um, practical problem and you just didn't talk about the problem. What you are doing, as I'm listening to you, is making it personal. You're saying... I'm not going to be the guy 
that lets that happen. And you said that to people. Exactly, the whole Navy. <laughs> so, 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 so you weren't just saying, you can't let that happen. You were saying, I'm not going to be the guy that lets exactly. that happen. Exactly. And okay. so you got to have a method. And so I introduced them to covenant leadership. Did I do covenant leadership last time? You did not. If that would be awesome, if you could unpack that. That's a, that's right, a whole, so, that's a whole podcast in itself. I just like to say that <laughs> well, yeah, if he's willing, probably. if he's willing, well, we'd love to have him back. Okay. Well, we can come back and do covenant leadership if you want to, but let's just say it's this, that a covenant is either a legal relationship, by the way, back, uh, well, we'll talk more about it. a legal relationship or personal relationship. And if it's a legal relationship and in front of an audience, I'd always unpack this, ask questions, you know, and, and what they thought it was. And if it's legal or personal, and if it's le legal, it's about contracts. And if it's personal, it's about promises. Okay. And so I said, those young people raised their hand and took that oath to promise and defend. And if you're a leader in the United States Navy, I'm asking you, what are you promising in return? Hmm. What do you promise because of what they promised to do? And then I said, I'll tell you what, and I'm going to end with the attrition story. And I'm not going to be the CNO of a Navy like that. We're not going to be like that. And why do you think 19%? Are you kidding? I mean, we couldn't sniff the goal ever. And uh, just to make a long story short, I will tell you, I knew I couldn't fix this because it takes 20 years to change the culture. And you know what would happen? The chief petty officers would get a young kid who was stumbling around because he'd never been away from home, probably might not have done real good well in school, but this was a chance for us to grow and develop this young person. And what would happen? They'd stumble and things would go wrong and the chief would say, get him out of here, roll me, roll in another one. And we'd send them home. And it was devastating. And I just said, look, let's find out, just like I did at the anti-submarine warfare school when 32%, we went and said, why are they failing? They were failing because of one crazy, super technical academic idea. The whole section was about that called Boolean algebra. And no, I said, well, what is Boolean algebra? Just to see if anybody in the room knew. And of course, they hardly any of them did. <laughs> Either you know. No, no clue. <laughs> anyway, we're sending these kids home, these genius level kids. And I said, uh, uh, when the leader of the school came back and, and told me what it was, I said, well, so, uh, okay, go find out that the graduate one year from now that left successfully. Find out what they know now. And she came back in about three weeks and said, okay, we've done sample documentation and blah, blah, blah. I said, what's the answer? She said, they couldn't make a, bit, a blip on the ordinate. <laughs> and I said, okay, this is pretty easy to fix. And she said, what do you mean? It's not going to, we got, that's, we got a whole redesign the whole course. I said, no, we don't. We're just today, effective today. I'm taking section eight out of the curriculum until there's another solution that says what it is. We can't do that. We have to go to the chief and table technical training, who's an admiral, and I wasn't an admiral, I was a captain. 
And I said, in Millington, Tennessee, I said, you spent, think anybody in Millington, Tennessee knows more about anti-submarine warfare than us? And she said, well, no. And I said, well, that's it. That, it Section 8 is out. And the next, the next reporting cycle, our attrition was 8%. In the big Navy, there are things happen that cause people to fail. Leaders are, on, are responsible for finding what they are and figuring out how to put solutions in place. And let me just give one example to say it might, it might be easy, it might be hard. A young sailor signs up and costs twenty dollars to $50,000 each to train them, and they get through to their first duty station and they're not very good at it. It's highly technical, and you know what we do? Out. Wait a minute. This is a gifted human resource. Uh, let's talk to them. Find out what went wrong. Why did it not work? What can we do to uh, change this circumstance and, and turn it into a success? Well, uh, they wanted to go into this. They wanted to go and feel this now. After they tried this one, they didn't like this. I said, well, look, here's the new rule. For the next six months, or maybe it was a year, for the first next year, we're going to make it open season. Any time during the educational process where we're training them, and, they're, uh, and they come in and say, this isn't working, I'm struggling with this. Instead of kicking them out, which let's do some retesting and let's figure out what we can uh, do that would be a better match than our first test that we gave them at the recruiting station that miraculously didn't size up this person perfectly about this uh, future that we want them to have. So there are things we can do. We're on the hook to do it. And that's what leaders are responsible for. So Vern, before Aaron, before Aaron asked that last question, because we're sort of running out of time, I, I, I want to see if I remember the elevator speech that you gave relative mm -hmm. to uh, covenant leadership. It went something like this. If I remember, and I'm old, so I could have forgotten, you know, but I think it went, the United States Navy does not exist to cut a fine silhouette on the horizon. We are, <laughs> we are here to defend the Constitution of the United States. And we will do that by giving you, the people in the Navy, the very best training you can get, giving you the very best equipment you can get, and we will teach you that to serve is a noble thing. How did I do? You did great. I gave you a A minus B plus uh, and say, because the last I thought was critical. And it happened when one kid in the- That's the last phrase you say? Was critical. The last phrase. The last phrase was, and I will. My promise to you is, I will commit the resources. Remember, bosses get to commit resources. Okay. I will commit the resources that give you a chance to make a difference for the United States of America and everything else you said on the front. Cool. I I I just left out the big part. See, that's why I have to. Keep <laughs> I want to always be a learner. Two, two, we do, I do have one last question, but there's, this is, this is, this is gold here. You talked about me. How did you, did you continually to convey that this is personal? Because that idea of attrition and somebody going home and, and Dick highlighted it, somebody leaving the mission field, they go home. They are an advertisement or publicity or whatever you want to put of how that went for their church, for their community, for mm -hmm. the people that partnered with them. 
um, it's an advertisement and to sign back up and say, man, it went disastrous. It was, you know I mean? It was, a, it was, and to take that personal, how did you keep that in front of the people you were leading so that they didn't forget that this is a personal commitment that they were making um, to the people they were leading? Well, so what this meant was that there were some OC dogs that had to go to uh, retirement time earlier because they, you know, couldn't figure out how this could possibly be on them. Not very many, I would, because, you know, uh, if we're going to come back and visit this, I'd like to disclose some of this later. But remember, I knew I wasn't going to be successful in turning around attention and, and attrition in the Navy because it takes 20 years. It was, it was a cultural problem. And so, but I did, after I pulled the attrition out of the calculus, and then I just put a, we, we the, my transition team, we did this before I took the reins, but we published it all in the first week. And we said, uh, okay, our goal for uh, the first year, our goal, number one uh, priority is win the battle for people. And we're reaching for our goal of 57% first term retention. They thought well, I was crazy. Uh, but then I started going out every place I went. And I was on the road a lot uh, telling this story. And the second day I was in the CNO, all the fleet and force master chiefs, that's the master chief of the command is the principal advisor to the admiral. And they were all in town for the change of command arranged by the master chief petty officer of the Navy who works for me. And he said, will you come and talk to him? I said, will I come and talk to them? I want to talk to every one of them. And I gave them this whole top five, starting with this. And I'm telling you, by the time I finished this part where I refused to be the CNO of the Navy like this, I had tears in my eyes. And, there were, and, and, and because of the nature of that event, they invited the spouses. And, you know, there were tears rolling down people's faces. And, you know, it was pretty apparent to me that they got the message. And I said, look, I, I can't do this without you. You guys are going to help me do this. Uh, you, you're the guys that touch all of the enlisted troops, you know, 400,000 of them. <clears throat> but I, I knew we weren't going to make it. Stretch goal. We couldn't make 38% in the old numbers. We sent a stretch goal of 57%. Um, 57%. We didn't make it. We only made 56.2. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, it was unbelievable what happened. They were so hungry for a message and a, that showed and, a, and a examples that showed that we cared about them, that we were committed to them. Yeah. And the response was overwhelming. I just, to this day, I can't, uh, uh, imagine how it could happen so quickly. Yeah. And by the third year, retention was so high, we had to change a whole bunch of things. So i uh, never forget it. The chief naval personnel called me and said, boss, I got a real problem. I said, what is it? He said, it's retention. I said, what do you mean? Retention is better than it's ever been in the history of the Navy. He said, that's the problem. First term retention is now starting. So starting the third year is 83%. And boss, we don't know how to run a Navy like this. <laughs> <laughs> Good, problem. Good problem to have. 
Well, yeah. Admiral, we have about five minutes um, left. I just wanted to, this is a, it's going to be hard, I know, for five minutes to answer this question. But last time we began to talk and you shared about um, your friendship and Dick, you, your guys' friendship, and someone sent the, this the um, question in, how does a leader know who their true friends are? And how do you d differentiate working relationships with true friendships? And um, I know that's hard to answer in five minutes, but um, just could you unpack that just a little bit for us? Well, he can, think, he yeah. can add on to his covenant leadership thing next time. Go ahead, Vern. Well, yeah. Um, I think that a lot of people deceive themselves thinking, well, you know, for, they need to just go to the web and look for first, and, and by the way, this is a fundamental though for leaders have to be, uh, have a certain, uh, more than a, a novice level of understanding of things like this. Um, there are relationships, but friendship is another level above relationships. Uh, relationships are uh, what exists between two people in the workplace. You know, we have thousands of relationships. We don't have thousands of friends. Oh, we might like to think that we do, but not really. Uh, I, friendship happens when you start, you, you're uh, talking to somebody that uh, you'll commit something significant uh, uh, that they ask you to do. You don't do that for any relationship you have at work. Uh, Hey, I really need $10,000 today. Can you help me out? You know, we have a good relationship. That's not the way it works. Um, and I exaggerate for effect just to make it uh, move quickly. We need to understand that there are friend relationships and there are friendships, uh, real friendships. I don't, too often we mix those terms. Uh, Dick, you've forgotten more about this than an awful lot of people would ever know. Uh, what's your re reaction to that starting point? You know, I, I think that, that we, if we're not careful, we undervalue friendship. And of course, leaders like Vern, when you were in the Pentagon, you lived your life in 15 minute increments, right? Mm -hmm. And, and leadership isn't hard. You've heard me say this before, Aaron, leadership isn't hard because you make decisions, you make a hundred a day or a hundred a week. Leadership's hard because you don't know who to trust. And uh, a, a friend, one of my definitions of friendship is a friend is a person with whom you can sit for two hours in silence and not feel awkward. And what captures me about the idea of friendship is that Jesus comes to redeem the planet. 33 years on the planet, three years public. He comes mm -hmm. to the night before the cross, John 15, and he redefines friendship for me. I always thought friendship was some lesser form of love that somehow was watered down commitment love. And he says it this way, no greater love has this than one lays down one's life for one's friend. And I'm saying, what's that about? And there are two words for friend in the New Testament. And they're both used that last week in Jesus' life. One is the word that when Judas comes to the garden to kiss him and betray him. He says, friend, this fourth paraphrase, friend, do what you need to do. That word for friend, not a bad word, but it means colleagues. It's exactly the thing that Burns has said about relationship. The other word means dearly loved. And there aren't many dearly loveds in our lives. There's a handful. If, if most 
middle-aged, and I'll speak to men, I can't speak for women. I, I can't even <clears throat> speak for all men, but studies have shown that at least 50% of men 50 years and older in this country, in the United States, do not have one friend, one person to whom they could say anything and the guy wouldn't punch him out. You know, I'd like to say, I, I'd like to think I could say virtually anything to Vern. I, I'd like to think that I could confess nearly anything to Vern and that he'd say, well, let's walk that through. Let's talk that through and see, see where we go with that because it is in fact a journey. The friendship leadership piece is huge. If you look at presidents of the United States, who are the most cloistered, in a very real sense, most powerful, most cloistered people in history. Oftentimes you'll find one person who has the ear, you know, whether it was Nancy Reagan with Ronald Reagan, or maybe it was Jim Baker with Ronald Reagan, or, Ed, you know, I'm just picking that out of the air. But, uh, but that piece is a critical piece. And when we come back, hopefully at some point to talk about covenant journey, maybe that could be unpacked a little more. It is. It is. Well, I think that that really speaks to, remember, Dick talked about the Marine Major escorting them in and out of the Pentagon uh, after 9-11. Uh, that was his question. And he wanted to know what uh, made this special between Dick and Vern. And, uh, and it was special. And there was a lot of soul bearing. Uh, but you can't bear your soul to every in every relationship that you're in that's not you're not supposed to either yeah yeah admiral would you pray um maybe there's a leader out there listening in and um this pray for them that they they need someone that they can talk to and someone they can trust and um i i really believe that relationships ordered by god are the ones we need in our life would you pray um that uh, we what we you've shared today that god will use that and um let them know that um that God is going to bring someone, we'll pray that God will bring someone their way to be that friend, just as you and mm -hmm. Dick have that relationship. Sure will. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that we can come before the throne and have direct communication with you. Uh, we magnify your name. We're so thankful that we get to uh, spend time with the one who literally spoke the earth into being and uh, created the oceans and the skies and, and animals and the human beings and this everything that exists in our life. And we're so thankful that uh, the rent was torn into and that we have direct access to you. We're thankful for this opportunity today again to spend time with missionaries around the world. And uh, we sure know the importance of them and and ask for your continued blessing and sustainment of these servants of yours. And in the field of uh, finding friends to support us and uh, spend time with and bear our souls and, and uh, to, be, to walk uh, arm in arm as brothers in Christ uh, in response to Aaron's question and in response to this prayer. Uh, I ask Lord that you would make us aware because we know that you're always uh, ready to do your work um, and i'm careful you never to try to tell you what that is god but i would ask that you would make each of us especially aware 
of the opportunities that are before us and people that come uh, through and pass through our lives. And that you would bring people into the lives of missionaries who need somebody that they can trust mm -hmm. and somebody that they can share yeah. uh, victories and heartaches and that they can find that person that can will be an encourager and that they can be an encourager to them. We're thankful that you are the God who answers prayer. And so I would just ask you, Lord, that you would continue to do your work in the lives of these missionaries and that they would find it possible to accomplish the purpose that you have for them in their lives, stationed around the world, called according to your word and your name. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.